thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. You took your life in your hands putting this airplane down. The other end of it was a cliff. I had this technique, slow the airplane almost to a stall, go into reverse just before touchdown. Full reverse, stand on top of the brakes. It seemed to work. Well, there are show horses and there are workhorses, and as the name implies and we all know, the workhorses are the ones unceremoniously getting the job done day in and day out. But in society and admittedly here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we tend to focus on the show horses. Well, that changes today thanks to two gentlemen joining me in the Circle Air Group studios here at Glesby Field in San Diego, California. The first is on my side of the table because he's no stranger to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. In fact, you met Rick Hartnack back in November 2022 talking about the F4U Corsair when the movie Devotion debuted and we had a special on it. Nack, welcome back to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Hey, thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Bob and the whole Fighter Pilot uh, Podcast audience. Fantastic. Well, I see you got the memo on the polo. Very good. And uh, just as a reminder, you were a Marine Wizzo in Vietnam flying in the back of the F-4 Phantom, which I might argue was a bit of a show horse. We, we always looked good. We always looked fast, but we didn't work as hard as Bob. We did an hour, <laughs> hour and a half in a day, and that was it. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe there are hybrids because I know the Phantom did a lot in Vietnam as well. But at any rate, uh, since you have some history with our guest today. Why don't you do the honors of introducing him? Yeah, thanks. Our guest today is Bob Strang, and Bob flew the C-7 in Vietnam for a year out of Phuket Air Base. Just in terms of the spirit of full disclosure to your audience, Bob and I have been in family-related since 1955, so we've spent a lot of time together over the years. We actually got together in Vietnam twice, just arranged meetings at the Chulai Airport when he was in there to fill up his plane with fuel and supplies to deliver. And uh, our families actually sent us Thanksgiving audio tapes so we could share in the family uh, events while we were gone. So it's great to have you here, Bob. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about your aviation background as we go along. Good to be here. Thank you. For sure. Welcome. So give us, if you would, please, a quick overview of your existence since uh, your hometown. And then we're going to drill down on some of your experiences in Vietnam. But I know you've got an extensive military experience and then some logistics stuff after that. Yes. I um, was uh, born and raised in a town south of Los Angeles called Downey, California, kind of a bedroom type of community for executives from Los Angeles. And went to high school there at Warren Warren High School and a wonderful experience growing up in Downey. After high school, went on to college and wound up at Arizona State University, basically because I wanted to get away from town to go to school. All my buddies were staying at home, and I thought this is better to go away because I'm I'm a bit of an adventurous. And went to ASU and uh, went through the uh, fraternity system there, which was a great experience. Have wonderful friends still from that era of my life. And at the end of my graduation, 
Vietnam was going on and the draft was devastating and everybody was trying to avoid it. Well, I thought, hmm, let's go down to the recruiter and went to an Air Force recruiter, went to a Navy recruiter, talked with them, did some tests. The Air Force recruiter was really back at me and everything. Wants you to get down here. We look like we have something here that's special for you. So he put me through some more tests and then sent me over to being at Arizona State in Phoenix, went over to Williams Air Force Base and uh, put me through a physical. What do I want to do that for? Well, he found out my eyes were 20-20 and everything else was good. You can go to pilot training. Oh, that might be a good way to stay out of Vietnam. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, long story short, he set me up for uh, going to the Air Force Officer Training School in San Antonio, Texas. If you're in the Air Force, you go to Texas. Everything is there. Anyway, spent a couple of months there in officer training school, academics, marching, learning how to be part of the military. You know, in the Air Force, if you're marching, it means you've been captured. That's right. <laughs> Got a good point. Anyway, so learned all of the good things about being um, an Air Force military officer. And from there, no time off, directly south Texas to Laredo, Texas, right on the border to pilot training for one year. And pilot training, as you probably can understand in the Navy pilot training, it's like getting a master's. In, in fact, it's more than that. The academics absolutely stunned me. It was, oh, this is not just an easy thing. For me, I found the flying was the best part of pilot training. I did very well in that. I struggled and had to work my tail off in academics. As a matter of fact, it got so critical getting through the tests that I found one of our classmates, a gentleman from Alabama, a real nice big boy. He was number one in our class. He was intelligent and he taught me how to study. So I'd study with him. I'd go over to his house, and we'd study and did great things. And it got me through the academics and went through pilot training, finished pilot training, and then off to whatever you were assigned to. And during that time, you could be number one in your class and wanting to have this beautiful fighter plane. But no, we want you here. I was uh, middle of the class, upper middle. I was trying to get a transport because I thought that would be a good slot for me. Well, I found one, the C-7A Caribou. Amazing to fly. But at that point, off to go training. Six weeks in uh, the Nashville area at uh, Seward Air Force Base and learned the academics and the aircraft specs and all that stuff and learned how to fly it. Touch and goes and everything else. But also learned parachuting, Lapsing things out of the airplane. What's what's like lape that. stand for? Low level across the runway, a chute goes out and pulls the load out. At that point, we learned how to fly the airplane. We graduated from that. We were sent to POW training up in uh, Washington, Spokane, where you learned how to E and E when you were in the jungle. A lot of good that did. But uh, <laughs> they tried to break us by putting us in boxes and doing ugly things to us. I'm not claustrophobic, so I would fall asleep, and I got in trouble for that. So <laughs> anyway, from there, 
onto the Philippines, where we were put through jungle survival training. Two or three days of that was very interesting. You were given your equipment, and you were just set loose in the jungle, and we had to E&E to get back to a certain point using a compass. So I did that, and sleeping in a hammock at night, trying to stay off the ground to get the spiders off me. And my third day, I thought, I think I'm going to make it. I think we're going to get close. And I'm going through this thick jungle in the Philippines, and all of a sudden, which I didn't know all this time, three little pygmies, they're called negritos, fabulous people, and they live in the jungle. They grabbed me and stopped me because 40 feet in front of me, I was going to walk off of a 500-foot cliff. So they were kind of your uh, unseen escorts for the last three days? They, they, I didn't know it, but they were right next to me. I didn't even know they were there the whole time. Anyway, so back to Clark Air Base and uh, to the officers club to recover. Then we were assigned to where we were going, and I was assigned to Phuket Air Force Base, which is a very big F-4 base for the Air Force. 10,000-foot runway, but they had our squadrons there of the um, caribou. We had revetments, and there was officer quarters and everything where we lived, and that's where I lived for a year in Vietnam. And I think that's probably where we'll spend the bulk of our conversation today. So could you then tell us briefly what you did after Vietnam and in your career after the military, and then come back and drill down on that? It was uh, very interesting. Leaving Vietnam, all of us wanted to get a good assignment, especially in my case, the Air Force. And that was a C-141, a four-engine jet wow. transport, because that would lead you to a good living flying commercially. So that was hard to come by. And a lot of assignments for the B-52 in Strategic Air Command, which was not desirable, but it was a fabulous airplane. Still flying, I matter of fact. Anyway, I was lucky enough to have a loadmaster and an engineer on my caribou that I flew with all the time that his nickname was Topcat, and he was a senior master sergeant, took care of me the entire year, made sure I never ran out of fuel. He knew people back at headquarters. We called one night, and he, yep, Bob, you can have a C-141. You're going to McCord Air Force Base in Washington State, south of uh, Seattle, and then went to the C-141, did out my three and a half more years of commitment, and then got out of the Air Force and went trying to find a job commercially. All of us were applying to PSA, Western Airlines, United, all the stuff. And then there was another one called Flying Tigers, based in Los Angeles, an air freight outfit. I applied there, and I got a job there. Long story short, I spent 18 years flying for them, and it was wonderful. Every airplane known to man, all the way from a DC-8, which we all flew, 747s, 727s, I got some great experience flying in with them. And then they merged with Federal Express, which is another long story. And all of us moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and um, finished out my career till I was 60 at that time. That's, they wouldn't let us fly beyond 60. And um, on to... Uh, retirement now. So coming out of uh, pilot training, were there a lot of C-7 slots? Because that was right at the time when the military was exchanging airplanes between Air Force and Army. I'll go into that in just a second. But 
Were there a lot of C7 sites? No, there, there were a few. There were two classes in our pilot training, and each class had two slots. I got one, another, my buddy got another one, or two in the other slots. So there were four of us went to uh, Seward for training. So just for our audience to bring them up to speed on the C-7, the C-7 was a Canadian-built airplane that the U.S. Army adopted and ordered about 160 of these things. But it was quite a controversy with the Air Force. Air Force had helicopters. Army felt constrained in their acquisition of helicopters by that. The Army wanted more domain over helicopters. The Air Force wanted to get the Army out of their mission set, the uh, transport deal. So in 1967, there was a, uh, an agreement called the McConnell-Johnson Agreement, whereby the Air Force took over all the C-7s all at once, got no pilots out of the deal, and freed up the Army to run their own helicopter acquisition deal. So there were a lot. You were flying the C-7 within a year of when it had been turned over to the Air Force. That's right. And the senior pilots had been brought in from other airframes? Other airframes. Some of them were gone from flying to the Pentagon and other nice desk jobs thinking they were going to enjoy life. And uh, nope, you're going to fly. Yeah. So there was majors and captains came. Some lieutenant colonels came out, which really enhanced experience in the squadrons. So younger guys could glean from that. And we all worked together, and that made a very safe, good operations in our squadrons. Did they not take any of the Army guys and None. bring them over? No. Negative. So, no. okay, Air Force, here you go, and figure it out. Good luck. How would you like to be the Army guy that now suddenly had to learn to fly helicopters? <laughs> Hopefully they got some training. Yeah. But. So uh, how long did it take you then to become a command pilot? I was in country about five months, and I went from the right seat over to the left seat in, as a command pilot. It happened fast, but you were flying so much that you got to know the airplane and know the operations very quickly. Other than a Cessna 172, had never flown a... A recip airplane. Recip airplane. And, and now I've got 14 cylinders on either side of me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two of those, R2000, is just amazing. Pratt Whitney's and uh, more about that maybe later, but yeah. So let's go into your squadron in Vietnam. Which squadron did you fly in? 537th at Phuket, yeah. What was a typical day? I mean, I know you flew lots of different missions, but what were some of the more typical missions you flew? You would come to headquarters at about 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning after getting breakfast, and uh, you would find out where you were going. Mostly in our squadron, we worked the Central Highlands, which is in the middle of South Vietnam. And so you would go over towards, from Phuket, to Pleiku. And that was a, basically where we flew out of a tremendous amount of time. There were other places, and we would go south and north to other places, sometimes up to Chulai, sometimes down to, even to Saigon and to Cameron Bay. But Pleiku was our place where we did our work. So yeah. were you taking stuff out to Pleiku or from Pleiku? We would maybe take a load over there, but mostly you're going over to Pleiku empty. And so you take off, and about 40 minutes later you were in Pleiku. You'd land, shut the airplane down, and go into what they referred to as ALSI, which is a command center for airlift command exchange place. And when you were assigned at your home at Phuket, 
you would get orders to go SAR, shuttle as required, at certain base. And it's SAR, Pleiku, or SAR down to Cameron, or Quinion, or somewhere in there. So they were, they were building flexibility in there for yeah. emergent situations, or medevacs, yeah. or we're under attack, we need ammo, or... Yes. Okay. Every day, the game plan changed and where they needed you to go. But most of the time, you're SAR over to play coup. And then they would tell you where you're going, your load, what you do, and so you'd make the trip. Anak, I know you got some questions lined up, but let me interrupt because we have pivoted to video in 2023, which is great. So those watching can see the images we're putting up in post-production of the C7 Caribou. But some people still listen while they're driving or exercising. Give us a quick summary, Bob, of the C7. I mean, I have to admit, Anak, when you came to me and said, hey, I've got Bob, we're going to talk about this, I had to look it up. So it, to me, is a cargo plane with an interesting wing shape, but just give us a quick summary of the aircraft as it, those it listening is, can imagine. Um, the, the C-7 Caribou is a light transport aircraft that the Air Force got from the Army. It is a stole airplane. It is about half the size of a C-130, maybe a little smaller, but it is incredibly durable to land and take off in short dirt strips can operate anywhere, grass, mud, short, fields, everything. Sometimes when we get uh, looking at a 10,000-foot runway, you don't know what to do, you know? <laughs> Where to land, right? You take yeah. off and land a couple times. Yeah. So it was a, a very durable airplane. Two pilots and what we referred to as an engineer, but he also served as the a loadmaster. And usually these individuals came from other big airplanes in the Air Force, and they were very experienced people, and knowing about the recip engines, which us jet jockeys didn't know about when we first got to it. And you learned how to start these big, beautiful Pratt Whitney's without backfiring them, <laughs> which was, you bought beers for that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you said about half the size of a C-130, I mean, literally, it looks sort of to the layman at like a C-130 as yes. far as it's got the cargo ramp on the back. It's got two engines instead of four, and it looks like a big cargo plane, but not that big. And a very versatile wing and lots of flaps. And a high wing to get the engines up off the ground. T-tailed. So you can, yeah. And you said stole a couple times, and again, we can Short takeoff and landing. Short takeoff and landing, okay. So uh, take us through the start sequence on an airplane like that. Initially, this was really amazing. You get to the airplane, you, of course, being in the military, as you guys know, you use checklists. And you have your engineer up there, and he's monitoring the gauges and everything. And so the right seater would have a start system. So you'd turn the battery on through the checklist, and then you would turn the engine. And each engine, you'd start from number one on the left side and to number two on the right side. But you'd have to do 20 blades, so you count them, one, two, three, just to get the oil and up and everything. My engineer always told me, if in, on your walk around, if you don't see oil dripping out of this engine, don't take it. <laughs> it means it's out. <laughs> no, yeah, or it's not, something's wrong. Yeah. They like oil, you yeah. know, and they, we went, they went, it goes through a lot of oil. So we, you turn those blades, and then all of a sudden, you'd engage the starter, and uh, you'd have your everything on the caribou, throttles, flaps, all the controls of the engine were up above, not down here. And you'd have everything in full and everything, and she'd start up, smoke and billering and everything, and she would start up. 
luckily you would not backfire and then you do the second engine so and then after that when you go through your different landings and, and go to play coup etc you would only do three blades you know because it was warmed up and ready to go. warmed up, yeah. yeah. She was yeah. happy. <laughs> and you would do this multiple times a day? Yes. Oh, my God. But you had to treat them. I'm not trying to be funny here, but uh, it's like having two women as your power plants. You had to be very conscious and say yes, dear, to them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many hours a day would you fly? Usually on a Pleiku SAR, as we described, you usually run maybe five to six hours a day. And how many takeoffs and landings? Usually 10. And the hours, it depends. You'd be out and back very quickly, maybe a 20-minute flight to get to the next camp or maybe an hour flight to get to the next camp, you know, and then back to play coup, empty, and load up again. Did you take passengers very often? Oftentimes. That brings to a very interesting story. That most of the time, there are about 12 seats in the airplane, six to seven, the um, fold-down type things where they could have straps and everything. You could take different personnel. Usually, we worked primarily for the Green Berets in Vietnam, in my squadron. There was other things you did, but those were the guys that were in the camps up in the central highlands and up towards the borders that uh, were critical and they needed support. And that was our job. And so we would take these guys, and they would fly with us and, and go in, and we'd land, and they'd get off the airplane. The Green Berets were a problem a lot because they were very experienced. And, you know, they, they all are trained to do everything, including parachuting, everything. And we'd often fly almost all the time with that back door open. And they knew when we got to their camp, we would fly in a circle 3,000 feet, just to check out everything was okay. And during that time, often they would sneak aboard with parachutes, and they would jump. And it's against the Air Force rules to take off and land without the same amount of people. Wait, hold on. You confused <laughs> me. I, and I'm publicly educated. You were circling the field they snuck on? No, they, they jump off the back with their parachutes just so they could get, they, okay, gotcha. they could get a yeah. jump. Yeah, yeah. And they knew that their, their camp was not under fire and it was safe. Okay. Um, well, but, they were young kids. They wanted a thrill. I mean, No, they're Green Berets. That's what they do. <laughs> they probably still do it, you know. <laughs> But it was always very funny that we'd have to fake the paperwork that we still had the same amount of people. So how, uh, what were the landing strips at these uh, Green Beret camps like? I mean, just dirt, right? Usually like a, a couple of good machines that would plow it all off. And they were kind of prepared, but usually just dirt. Some places had, of course, it's a tropical area. And dirt, meaning when it's tropical, a lot of rain and there is mud. That helped you stop, too. But there was also places where they put this metal planking down called PSP, and it was slippery. It, you had to be very careful landing on that stuff. It was, uh, there was a couple of places that it was just almost, ick. wish it was muddy. How long would these fields be? Usually uh, 2,000, 3,000, maybe sometimes as much as 5,000 feet. And you'd just come down and plan it right on the numbers. There weren't any numbers, but, <laughs> right. but we put it right down and reverse and do a little braking and dust would fly all over the place. And finally, you go IFR for about 10 seconds. 
and then you'd turn the airplane and go taxi back through the weeds and back where their camp was. Their camps were very, very interesting, always triangle, and everything was underground. They lived underground. They even had ice boxes and freezers and stoves and everything and living quarters. It was all underneath this thing. And so you would go supply them. But there were a few fields that were incredibly short. One was up where you were, Rick, inland of July. And it was on top of a, like a plateau and only a thousand feet long. And without wind in the afternoon, you couldn't really fly in there in the morning because it was dead. I was lucky enough to be checked out in this field. There was only two or three of us that got the privilege of flying in there. And you took your life in your hands putting this airplane down. But you go in with a, not a very heavy load, of course. You'd have to put it down right at the edge of this thing. And at the other end of it was a cliff that went down into a river. I had this technique, it wasn't authorized, but as you came right down to touch down, maybe 200 feet, and you'd slow the airplane to almost to a stall, which is somewhere around 60 knots, I would go into reverse just before touchdown, which was totally not authorized, <laughs> but it seemed to work. And you'd smash the thing down and full reverse, stand on top of the brakes. Maybe the co-pilot was helping, too. And you'd get it stopped. Bob, you were doing this, though, also just visually, right? Like, All I've landed on something a 1,000 feet long. It was called an aircraft carrier. We had lenses and lights and everything. Yes, yes. But this is dirt. This is a funny story. And not 30 knots over the nose. Yeah, true. I have yeah. friends that were all Navy pilots and all CQ'd, okay, and very good at it. Well, one time up in Santa Barbara, I was up with them with a bunch of them, and we were in the bar talking, and I described what I just described to you, landing at this field. And they went a 1,000 feet, and they bestowed upon me an honorary CQ to an Air Force pilot, <laughs> if that's possible. If, hey, if it happened at a bar, it's legit. So I have been CQ. All right, very good. Wow. But even just as you remember from your career in the Flying Tigers and FedEx, as the case is for me now, everywhere we go on a runway, there's lights or there's a director to pull you in. You were doing things on grass and mud and dirt, and yeah. what, just look out the window Look for out the window, and, and that's why wow. uh, the Hover about 3,000 feet above mm -hmm. before you go in. You make one turn around it. If you knew the airfield pretty well, you would do a little bit of less than that, and then you go in and, and put it down. Yeah. And there was ready room talk in the evenings. Hey, I went to this place, and this thing happened, yeah. right? That's some oh, of the yeah. best learning is yeah. in the ready room. Yeah, well, and at uh, the, uh, the facility where you had a few beers. Too. Had a refreshment, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> wow. Uh, ground fire, how big a factor was that in your Ground fire at, uh, was always, small arm fires was always a factor. And 3,000 feet above was the safe zone. And so you'd always be at somewhere between uh, at least 3,000 feet, maybe four or 5,000 feet, which brings another story. You're talking about Army and Air Force and flying in Vietnam. We were always instructed, do not follow the roads in Vietnam for navigation because the Army does. That's, <laughs> that's where the rifles are. Yeah, yeah, well, and that's where the helicopters are. So, you know, if you don't want a midair, stay off of the roads. So, so you'd use TACAN and stuff like that to get to and, and, and just basic knowledge. So, Did you fly at night? 
There were certain times you'd fly a night, deliveries sometimes, that you need to get an airplane down to uh, Saigon for uh, maintenance or to uh, Cameron Bay. But uh, not tactical. Uh, right? Yes. At the end of my tour there, we had a, a camp that was incredibly attacked by the NVA and uh, the enemy. And we were doing day drops to get supplies to our brothers, the, the Green Berets down there. And it got to the point where we were getting shot up so bad during the day that we said, hey, let's try something at night. So we got, through coordination, Spooky to help us, gunship. And they would go over this camp and make their hover circling, as they did. And then we, using certain navigation systems, TACAN, uh, I know the territory. Basic stuff. Yeah. Um, know the territory, you know, time and distance from a one point. And we would descend at night down to these camps, down to 100 feet, and then do a pull up and drop. It was interesting because if anything popped its head up, spooky would literally devastate the area. It was incredible to watch. <laughs> I'd be hovering above and watch this machine go off. How has that deconfliction worked out? Were they on a wider circle than you were? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, All right. yeah. What about, I mean, wasn't Vietnam also kind of notorious for poor weather? If it was daytime. Lousy weather sometimes. How did you, yeah. but again, we a moment ago talked about no landing aids or lights. No, or there was uh, IFR. No. <laughs> there were times at Play Coup where the, uh, it was raining and then also there was ground fog too. And you'd have to use a GCA to get in. There was no ILS at that time. <laughs> so some, they had GCA at Yeah, they set up something. They had, they had GCA set up at Pleiku. You, uh, you knew the airport so well because you're in and out of it all the time. So you would uh, get down to your minimums and, yeah, I think we can go and just land at night. One time I got a major come up and stood me up in the Alcee, you know, headquarters and you busted your dish. No, no, I had the runway environment, you know. <laughs> so, a tree? <laughs> yeah, I was looking sideways. <laughs> so I know that tree. Yeah. Uh, uh, literally, you knew the approach so well that yeah. I know where I'm at, Absolutely. and I'm lined up. We were awarded a DFC during your tour. Uh, I was very lucky to be awarded uh, a Distinguished Flying Cross and with uh, two extra ones, so oh, two. Wow. During the end of my tour in April, a small camp, Green Beret, north of Pleiku, became just devastated. And it was up in a, like a box canyon, and a, right off of a river, in a very precarious spot in this, in this valley. And they were surrounded and just getting eaten alive. So we had an operation where we had FAC and fighters. So the forward air controller would control everything. And we would use everything from F-4s, F-100s from Tuiwa, yeah, the guys, uh, that whole squadron there. And then, of course, gunships and the um, A-1Es, SPADs. God, they were fabulous. The, the other radial engine in the crowd, right? <laughs> they would, two of them would be on your wing on the way down to drop. And they would sometimes at the top, they would daisy chain underneath you. And then anything that popped up, they would go after. But the most effective machine that protected you on your flight in to make these drops were the A-1 gunships, the Army guys. And they could sit 
right on your wing, all the way down, all the way down to, to the 100 foot level. And they would just stop and turn and just rip somebody. They were very effective. The Cobras, right. Oh, the Cobras were. Is that what you were saying, yeah, the A1 yeah. Cobra? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then also just regular gunships, too. Yeah, just the Hueys. The Hueys with the Hueys loaded with guns. out. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they had. What do they the, call it? Slicks and, yeah, and something like snakes that. Yeah. or something? Okay. But yeah. then um, I might go on to just describe this drop. And it was a high, intense drop where you would slow the airplane, turn towards the field, and descend down from say two or 3,000 feet down to 100 feet right above the camp. And you'd start this descent at 90 knots, which is usually around a landing approach speed. And then you would slow it just above stall, which is around 60 knots in this airplane. You can imagine this size of an airplane going only 60 knots. Anyway, you get it down there, you have a load in the back, no parachute, just your engineer ready to cut a line to let it go out the back end. So you would go down to 100 feet, and the fact was right above you, talking to you all the whole time. And you get right as it went under your nose, pull the airplane straight up into the air with full power, literally from a stall speed, trying to accelerate, and out the back end the load would go. And during this descent, you were getting... <laughs> and probably hit, getting hits because you're yes. big and slow. The good thing about this airplane during Vietnam is that the Air Force put in Kevlar seats around our regular seats. There was nothing in front of you in that airplane that would protect you. So Bob thought it would be a good idea to take tie-down chains from the back, put them in front of the rudders in case bullets were coming this way. No kidding. Little creativity there. <laughs> <laughs> but we made two or three drops the first day, and that's where I won the Distinguished Flying Cross because we, we just really we went back and, and they had to put duct tape all over all the holes in the airplane. Uh, the poor engineer, he's in the back, and he's we all have flak jackets on. I wore two, one around my rear end and one around this, so I would I commandeer an extra one just to, so I'd be more protected. From the front is the biggest problem. But getting this load out of the back was a big thing. And we'd put it right in that triangle shape, right on their doorstep. They could literally drag it in. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. 
And this isn't obviously fine china we're dropping that's going to pulverize. It's something pretty it's food, stout. Because food it's, and ammunition. Yeah. So it, it can fall out at 60 knots and you bet. tumble a you time bet. or two. Which uh, I will describe another type of a drop that um, is a very interesting story. When we first got to Vietnam, my buddies and I got into my, this squadron. They were doing drops to the Green Berets. They wanted beef. And they would put a cow, probably a water buffalo type of thing. Alive? Bit. Yeah. And they put them in a wooden cage on a pallet and then a parachute on it. So we would go over about 1,000 feet, and then out the cow would go, and it would do usually pretty much we'd get to the camp. But a lot of times it would go outside the camp, and the bad guys would get this cow. Free cow from yeah, heaven. So, but it, it wouldn't hurt the cow. It's fine. It would land because it had a big parachute on. It's very nice. He wasn't steering itself. Cows can't do that. Well, we got there, and we did a few of these. And, you know, I went to the commander and with a couple of my other compatriots, and we said, you know, we think we can get this to the Green Berets better. I talked to a couple of them, you know, when I landed there and said, you don't need the parachute. Just drop it in. We'll, we'll slaughter it, and we do what we cut it up anyhow. We don't, it would save a bullet and having to kill it. So we would take the same thing in the cage of the wooden cage. Cow would be there and no parachute and do the same thing at 100 feet, pull up, out the cow would go, bam, splat, right in the, and the Green Beret says, keep them coming, Bob, this is great. They would <laughs> cut it all up, put it in their freezers down below, have beautiful steaks for the rest of the time. Keep them coming, Bob, we love them. That was a little thing, and the, our commanders just did not, this is, if this ever gets out, we're gonna be in trouble, you know? <laughs> it just got out. <laughs> you, you identified a couple of different ways that you delivered things, right? One is to land and offload it, one is to do, I don't know what you call that maneuver you just described a couple of times, and then there was just the regular old flyover and either people or, or parachutes would yes, drop out. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then at the very beginning, you talked about the low flyby where the little parachute like dropped. Oh, the out. lapes. lapes uh, yeah. We found that the lapes was so dangerous because of the pallet getting hung up and then you'd be flying with a parachute behind you. And it, would, it was dangerous. So we decided the lapes was no good. We just uh, do the uh, gravity drop. And that was, we were good at it. Back to what I was describing about this one camp called Doxiang where we, I've got my distinguished flying cross. We did it two or three, four times more that week, and it was still surrounded, and they, we just had to keep going and going and trying to get this stuff into these guys, and that's where, at the end of the tour, maybe two weeks, the uh, command decided, let's try this at night, and that's when we started doing it at night, because it was safer. They didn't know we were coming. Yeah. Couldn't see it with lights yeah. out. So you're doing this lights out, but this is before night vision goggles, right? What about defenses on your aircraft? Did you have any way to shoot back? Yes. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> I had a, a Colt 38 revolver that I you had a holster and everything. I would literally take it off and put it behind my seat because I was afraid I was going to shoot myself in the leg, you know. We were not trained killers, no. We delivered. And there was no AC-7? There was no gunship version of the Caribou? Negative. It would have made a good gunship, though. Yeah. So on, on a uh, another question along this line, was, was there ever too much ground fire where you just couldn't go in and do your job? Yes, and we'd, we'd find that you'd go in, somebody would go in or you would go in and you were really taken, right? And so you'd go back wherever you're working from and tell 
the ALSI that we're getting too much fire, or the Green Berets would radio and make sure that the 7th uh, Air Force would know that this is a hot field now and we'd have to stop. And then we'd make plans to do the gravity drops the next day or another way. And we need FAC and fighters to work with us now. But this is South Vietnam, so you're not worried about SAMs probably or Negative. enemy fighters? Or Negative. It's like all that. small okay. arms. Small arms. Yeah. But some of it's pretty big small arms. I oh, mean. it's 50 cal. Yeah. Yeah, which is not exactly, a, not. I don't even consider it a small arms, you know. And were you, I don't know how to put this, but right from the enemy's point of view, were you a definitely let's go after that one because of what they're carrying or eh, don't bother with them let's go after the helicopters oh were they, they no we were, we were logistics so they you know this this means they're getting ammunition the caribou is amazing how durable the airplane was i, I mean i can't believe that the r2000 uh, the white uh, pratt whitney's uh, endured so well i i was just amazed bullet through and stuff like that would um, wreck a jet engine, you know. Can we talk a little bit more about the airplane itself? Sure. As far as, sure. for example, were the propellers counter-rotating or were, did they both rotate the same? They rotated the same thing. They were three blades, complete reversible. They could feather completely. They were very durable. One of the things that you talk, well, I told you before about if the engine's leaking oil, that's good. Right. If the hub of that propeller has got any oil on it, that's bad. That's bad. That thing is, you needed that. As a, an instructor, I would oftentimes get assigned to take an airplane up and, and do engine work on it. In other words, shut the airplane down and feather it. And it was really interesting to shut an airplane down and feather the prop so it's going in, in the face of the wind. And then unfeather it and start the engine using the feathering, you know. It, it was really interesting. I got to know the airplane very well. I was privileged to be an instructor pilot and able to do some of that work. Was that when you returned or there in theater? In theater. Wow. So I, on I, the I, job training? It was amazing. Giving the privilege of being an instructor pilot carried on when I got to C-141s. So on a uh, slightly lighter note, you uh, flew a really unique mission Christmas 1969. Yes. Caribous are kind of famous for this mission, and you were the guy that did it for your squadron? Yes, I was assigned. Okay, Bob, you're caribou boy. Yeah. So <laughs> tell, tell our audience about the uh, Santa Boo. The Santa Boo. If you look at the airplane, it's got a very distinct radar dome on the front of it. And we painted the front of the airplane just like it was like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But it had a red face and, and all the white and everything. And, but that red nose was incredible. And it looked like Santa Claus uh, coming in. So we loaded the airplane up for three or four days. And it was loaded with gifts and candy and fun things. And then also, along with the crew that, we, that went with us, and we had a couple extra engineer loadmasters with us, we asked the Red Cross, which had ladies in Vietnam similar to what, it, what they were in World War II, and they were nicknamed Donut Dollies. They would, did incredible work around. They would go to camps via helicopter, etc., and sometimes with us, and serve coffee and donuts to uh, the troops, and to see a, a nice young female and they had their little uniforms that were down below their knees, which was another interesting story. And the girls would, would tell me that they would roll their skirts up just so they could be at their knees. Anyway, we had three or four of those donut dollies with us for the Sanibu 
mission, and they would help give out the candy and everything. It was a lot of fun. During this time, this is a unique and a personal story, if I may add. One of those donut dollies, her name was Susan, we got to be good friends. And at the end of Vietnam, we parted ways and said, let's get together when you get home. She turned out to be my first wife. Susan was a wonderful lady, uh, mother of my children. And anyway, she's still fine and everything. So that was a unique story of what happened during Sanibu. Yeah. So I got a present too. She was a wonderful friend and, oh. and then eventually my, my lovely wife. So oh, That is quite a story. And just to make the point, right? A caribou is an undomesticated reindeer, I guess. So that, that yeah, works out pretty well. Absolutely. And you had the ability to get into those small strips and uh, help yeah. those guys. And then back in Vietnam, it was male combat only. So they are out just seeing other males for a while and they're young. And so to see a young, attractive female. Yeah, she come off the back end of that airplane. We uh, had them come down and uh, serve and stuff. And the guys went, ah, oh, the army guys. Went, oh, <laughs> Reminded what they're fighting for. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And they're in their Red Cross stuff, and oh, this is good stuff. Uh, it, it was uh, good spirit moving. So, how many of those donut dollies or troops, I guess, back to the regular conversation, could the caribou carry? And I suppose it depends on if they're fully loaded or not, or if they're horizontal. You did some oh, no, we had, too, we had right? regular you know, right, but seats you did, down. You could take the casualties out too. So. Oh yes. What, we, what could the caribou carry? As far as we could carry, like I said, uh, people seated about twelve people. A lot of the, this is the hard part that we did the um, body bags and they would be loaded two or three per pallet maybe four pallets of that it was not easy to do this because they had been in the jungle for quite a while and we'd have to work with that a lot go in with some of the guys from the army helicopters and go into their fields and stuff and pick up those types there was also an interesting situation we discussed before in vietnam there was small pygmy-type mountain yards. They were in different valleys and stuff. And their valley was their own world. They never leave that valley. It was, you know, it was, their, it was basically a tribe, you know. And we would go in and pick these guys up and take them in, because the Green Berets used them extensively around their camps. They would know and help them in the jungle. And there weren't enough seats or the little ones couldn't fit in seats. So we would strap eight to maybe 10 on a pallet. They'd lay down, face down, straps across the top of them. And we'd take 20 or 30 or 40 of them strapped down on a pallet. <laughs> That's crazy. I've never heard that. <laughs> I know. It was, it's almost, almost inhumane. But they were so durable and wonderful people. In fact, uh, one of the places we went into and th with that Sanibu uh, was a place and, and we gave them the candy and stuff there, and these little people would come out. Bob, you talked about some of the approach speeds. What about performance in general? We can all read online about altitudes and speeds. What did you typically cruise at and how far could you go? How high would you go? Uh, the, the max speed was about 160 knots. Okay. You could probably get it to 200. <laughs> they say you could climb to 28,000 feet, but that would take maybe a week or two to get up there. <laughs> Performance. She wasn't a real fast mover, but she was so durable and so uh, and amazing to fly. 
about 150 knots was your cruising speed, maybe 140. And how long or how far could you go at 150? Uh, you could go to 1,100, range was 1,100 miles. Okay. You could go over to, I'll say it again, we'll go over to Pleiku to, to shuttle over there and maybe refuel once, maybe twice. You'd base your fuel on, oh, we got to carry a big load, so we want to get, we don't want to carry a lot of fuel, and we got to get back. A lot of times that I got myself in trouble for that. <laughs> I don't know. If you weren't worried about a small runway on a high airport, what could it carry as far as pounds of bullets or? Oh food? yeah, yeah. You had, you had to watch. You know, uh, we didn't get into a lot of uh, high altitudes. So we, you know, you're in a very tropical. I mean, you're down to sea level areas. Maybe Pleiku was 1,000 feet, maybe 1,500 feet, and some of these other camps got up around that, but it was not a factor. But you could take, what, three or 4,000 pounds worth yes. of yeah, yeah. cargo there? Yeah, we could take uh, ma- probably max about uh, two or 3,000, yeah, yeah. But it was never that much. We were always, these small shuttle things, we were taking 500 pounds, and Sometimes it wasn't even weighed at all. You take the whole plane was, was full, but it didn't weigh that much. It was you know, clothing and stuff like that. Did you participate in the Cambodian incursion? In- no, my squadron didn't. The guys down in Saigon and Vung Tau, Vung Tau guys were all Australians. So they were an incredible group to work with. I got down there a couple of times and to work with them and if you can't enjoy Australians, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what was the situation? Uh, I'm not familiar as far as the, what'd you say, oh, Cambodian? Yeah, we, in, in May, uh, May 1st, 1970, we crossed the border into Cambodia. And it was a very large operation, a couple of army divisions, and they were shuttled in by caribous. They were shuttled in by uh, helicopters yeah. and uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think they landed a C-130 over there. We but. wanted to get our squadron. Oh, can, we, can we do that? We want to get into No, we were going to use you somewhere else. So I got into Cambodia. Oh, really? Yeah. Before, uh, before that. Before it was official? Yeah. Before, yeah. I'm not supposed to tell you this. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's watching. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Every once in a while, you'd be in, I'd go over to play coup. And before you left, they said, you might be doing some clandestine operation be prepared to take your uniform off and wear something civilian. So you were over at Pleiku, says, yeah, you're going to Cambodia. So we had to supply and help a CIA operation over there, Air America. And so you take your flight suit off and put on Levi's and a T-shirt because you wanted to be clandestine. Doesn't your airplane still say U.S. Air Force? <laughs> United States Air Force, so and so. I am referring to military intelligence. Uh, <laughs> a great oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp. Anyway, we go over there, and, and they had places that we uh, were shown. They brief us before we went over where to go, how to go, what navigation system to use, et cetera. And we get to these camps, and there were incredible operations from the guys in the CIA, you know. Air America, they were flying some interesting small airplanes. Well, and you said earlier there was what five caribou squadrons, so some were maybe earmarked for that mission. Yes, and you were more. Yeah, we we were kind of, yeah we we were briefed and know what to do. We knew when to take our Levi's and T-shirt over. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
Bob, I have a handful of questions from listeners, if you don't mind. I can cover some of these real quick. These are folks that support the Fighter Pilot Podcast on a service called Patreon. So what I do is I tell them, hey, our friend Nack has got a friend lined up to talk about flying the C-7 Caribou in Vietnam. And so they're able to put forth some questions. So I'll just run this by you. One is from Gundog4314. He says he was always curious about the peculiar wing shape. Was the purpose for the main gear or flight characteristics? And just on that note, it does seem to me like the wing root coming out of the fuselage has a bit of an anhedral to, yes. to the nacelles. Yes, yes. Almost similar to the Corsair. And it uh, was uh, effective in, in uh, the short field, the lift. And the flap system was incredible. I mean, we you could put down literally a barn door on either side of the thing to, to get into these to that thousand foot strip mm-hmm. and, and you'd start down final and at the halfway down you'd put all these flaps down full power just to stay at the airspeed of above 60 knots so you wouldn't stall mm-hmm. and then of course bam in the reverse it's just amazing the other problem with flying into these short strips was getting off of them too there are times where I got stuck in this 1,000-foot slip place because there was not enough wind or the storm would come through and you'd have to just sit there and wait. And then I remember coming off of the thing, full power and almost similar to what you guys feel when you go off of a carrier and you sink. And you'd sink into this cliff and then you'd dive the airplane down this river and fly down the river and see if you can get back to July. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. All right. My next question is from Matt McDonough, who is the purveyor of a podcast on watches. And so his question appropriately is, what type of watch did you wear when you flew the Caribou in Vietnam? Do you recall? Yeah, it was a U.S. Air Force issue. Timex or something? Timex. (laughs) It was a Hamilton, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. The green one? I guess. I can't even remember, but it was issued, you know. Uh, Being um, a second lieutenant, you couldn't even spell watch at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Was was the the missions that you described so far today, Bob, were they – was there ever one where it's like you got to be there on the minute or second, or was it sort of gentlemanly get there when you get there kind of thing? You mean uh, when I was shuttling to these places? Right. Like yeah, they, there were times where you have to, okay, we want you to off and it needs to be there at this time. Okay. So we would we'd base our departure and getting there on time, especially if you had some sort of support, i.e. forward air controller there. You check in with him. Where are you? How, you're late, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you're late and he was there on time, he's well, he's got, got a set gas. of fires up here. Right. And they they right. can't sit around all day, you know. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. This other one is a bunch of letters with no vowels. That I think it's Desert Fox. Could be Dessert Fox. How do you perform a maximum performance short takeoff and landing in the Caribbean? What were the procedures? Now we've talked about the landings already. Yeah. But for takeoff, I'm guessing go as far back on the runway as you can. Hold the brakes. Oh, yeah. Run it up. Yeah. Bunch of flaps. Yeah. Grab the brakes. Set it. You know, and go. Full power, you go, you know, to the full mags on the thing, and then pop the brakes and just, and get it running down the runway. And God help you if there's too much mud, um, because that ruins the performance. But you'll get it off, and you just pull back on that thing, and she'd fly off. It was amazing. Uh, you could get her off the ground, literally within a thousand feet if you had to. You wouldn't do it all the time, but you know. 
you get some air speed up. With that high wing, could you get into uh, ground effect and build up speed and ground effect, or was uh, not, a little bit, not much though. Yeah, and remember the T tail was stuck way up in the back, so it had a giant vertical stabilizer. Uh, the rudder was monstrous. You could turn the thing around. It is amazing how you could bank the thing. With, right. You know. But again, drawing a parallel to your life after the Air Force, so if you were running down the runway in your 747, you know V1 and rotate and distance remaining markers. Right. Now you're going down a dirt strip where you've got a plant or a rock maybe, yeah. but is it just eyeball and muscle memory? It, it, yeah. I, I'm, it, we're going to make it? We're or gonna, no, no, we need If to we can just get the airspeed indicator, uh, okay, uh, pull, rotate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Were mishaps common? Blown tires, that was a big problem. But the damn thing was so durable. I mean, the gear on it was just amazing. You could pound that thing into the ground. The struts on it, I don't know how it took. Took uh, the beating. Yeah, yeah. And the nose gear was a little more vulnerable than the the main gear, but they they took care of two double, double wheel and main gear, very durable. John Clark's question, I think you might have already answered, because he asks, how was the reversible pitch propeller capability used in combat conditions? You said earlier you went into that before you even touched down. Yes, it was, it was supposed to only when you touch down, then you hit reverse. And I thought, you know, this might be a nice technique. The throttle was up here, and you would forward, you know, you know, more power. But to go into reverse, you had to go up and then pull back on it. And there was not a weight on wheel switch or something? No, no. So you could no. do it in flight? You, so I, I thought, you know, maybe we could try this. And it worked. And I went right into Bam! <laughs> <laughs> what did the person sitting to your right think? Um, you're not supposed to do that, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Niels Hansen, who is an Army officer, says, did you fly Army or Air Force, and do you have any perspective on the transition from Army to Air Force, specifically as it pertained to operations, missions, organizations, tactics, maintenance, and culture? You don't have to hit all those. But we talked earlier about, right, it was a here-you-go type of yeah. deal, yeah. and so you didn't have any of those Army folks follow you over? You flew No, Air Force, no. You said, uh, but... The Air Force did a lot of, they took the airplanes and Air Forced them, <laughs> and they turned them, you know, repainted and all that stuff, and did their Air Force on the side and everything. But uh, there was a couple things that they did that just just to make it so we understood the cockpit better. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it, it came to us, and we just had to learn this new machine. Your your instructors when in transition training when you went after pilot training, were they Army guys or were they also? I think, Air Force? Uh, as I remember, some of them were. But m- most of them were civilian. Oh, really? Oh. They, Pulled them back after. Yeah, maybe. maybe a couple of Canadians, you know. But they would be out there with us with our silly uniforms on and working with us, doing touch and goes and stuff like that. And that was their, that was their job, you know. They were paid to train us. Contract. Here's a fun one from Jonathan Zissett. I hope I pronounced that correctly. What was your favorite feature of the caribou and why? I think the fun thing about it was uh, its ability to fly it. I went through a year of pilot training, became a jet jock in an F-5, and then I got to Vietnam and learned really how to fly. You could take it to a stall and you could take it to high speed. It was incredible. Was it, I'm guessing, cables and pulleys, right? So it's not yes. like your boosted yes. controls yes. or anything else. Everything. It's And it, it was up here, and, you know, and, and all this <laughs> stuff it was transitioned. and. Yeah. And it was incredible also to have 
this heavily experienced engineer with you, Air Force guys that knew radial engines, knew about maintenance of, of airplanes. You were straight out of Air Force pilot training, and it was incredible to get instructed by some of these very experienced uh, enlisted guys. Yeah. Were the engineers also loadmasters? Yes, double they doubled. Okay, they yeah. doubled that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they would sit up. They would even do a thing where right behind me was a ladder and a hatch. They would sit up there on that hatch when you were taxiing, watching your wingtips, so you didn't hit anything. You know. So. <laughs> My goodness. All right. The last question. I think you've already answered. Sean Jones says, "Was a caribou mission a solo kind of thing, or was it combined with other protective assets, given where they were going?" And we talked about a lot of your missions were solo, but sometimes you had A1 Sky Raiders or yep, AH-1 right, Cobras yeah. or... You found your way to the place you were supposed to go, to the, the camp, and you knew where it was, yeah. How about this then? Did you ever fly in multiple caribou formations? Yes, there was, a t there was really fun. They, they had a technique that it was like an extended trail that we were supposed to fly in. However, three or four of us were coming back from, say, Da Nang, so we would practice fingertip formation in the caribou. We got in big trouble for it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody told on us. Because we were right there, tucked into each other. All nice. You were the Thunderbirds oh, on the we Thunderbirds in we green. <laughs> and then we, what we did, then we, the, where we got in trouble was that we took it all the way down to Phuket. And here the fighters are coming in and breaking and everything. Yeah. So we, we called initial and did a three-ship break, break, break. And so they had to put several F4s in, in holding pattern just so we, because we were so damn slow. <laughs> and we did the full break and everything came in. Oh my. And of course, we were told to go to the commander's office immediately uh, of after course. this. Well, you haven't been a proper lieutenant if you haven't been sent there. So you spent obviously some very formative times of your career in the C7. You went on to the C141, which Starlifter, I believe. Yes. Right? That must have been, I mean, we don't have to spend a bunch of time on it, but that must have been Compared to flying in the dirt and someone looking out at the hatch at your window, uh, it was tip. it was air cargo, and it was just a transition above what you were doing before. But I transitioned very quickly to it. I really enjoyed flying the uh, C-141 Starlifter, and even did a little bit of work after I got out in the reserves. And it was, uh, I just enjoyed flying. It was worldwide flying. We did a lot of embassy flying, carrying embassy stuff and secret stuff. And I got checked out as a flight instructor in that. But we're also privileged, I think privileged, to be checked out flying nuclear weapons. Really? Not for delivery. Well, Deliver, for, for deli delivering them for places to place to for place. For movement. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, and to handle them, we had to go through this school of, you know, how to help down there and everything. So the entire crew got down and watched these things come into the cargo compartment. <laughs> I bet. Well, Bob, what keeps you busy these days? I mean, um, you've, you've done your Air Force time. You did your... Got retired now. time. And, and um, have been involved in uh, racing sailboats for many years and loved doing that. And now I am now a Coast Guard Mariner captain up to 100 ton vessels and I do deliveries and um, I manage sailboat racing and starting them and finishing them out. So Have you come full circle back to, what'd you say at the beginning, Downey area roughly? Or no, I'm in, down in the uh, south end of uh, Los Angeles, Southern California, Orange County area. Okay. 
Newport Beach area. So stay on the water and um, sometimes they get to Catalina too many times. <laughs> uh, C7 uh, veterans, you guys have a reunion organization? Yes, it's a C7 Caribou Association, and it's run by a group of people Midwest, but we're scattered all around the United States, and we have caribou reunions every year. This one will be... Um, I think back east in, in te- Texas somewhere. <laughs> east from our perspective, yeah. yeah. There's a C7 at Wright-Patterson. Have you ever been to that? Yeah, there? there's there, there's several good ones around. I've been to several of them. Uh, they What they try and do with the Caribou Association is to have our reunions where those are. And, uh, it, and that, that's a good specimen, yeah. Did you... Uh, Fly any of the ones that are on display? That no, we're not allowed to even. No, no, I mean, no, like when you, you flew, logbook. check oh, your logbook. There's one of them. Yeah, there's the, the ones that I flew were all, there's a KN on the tail. Bob's been in those. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And America was not the only country that flew these, right? Uh, Australia. Australia, yeah. for one. Yeah. And they, they work in a small area down in southern Vietnam called Vung Tau. And then after Vietnam, I read that the aircraft was mostly moved to, I think, reserves. Yes. And then one, at least one, ended up back with the Army for their Well, and it's team, a I shame <laughs> uh, we left a, f- a lot of, a few of them in, in country uh, when, we, when it was overrun. It was a shame to leave them there, but they, could, they didn't have anybody to fly them out. So. Well, we just did the same thing not too long ago in Afghanistan. Yeah, so. we never learned. <laughs> never learned, do we? <laughs> Uh, that's another thing we'll get into tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> well, one of our traditions here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Bob, is we always ask about call sign stories. Although, Knack, I don't think we've ever really gotten your story, but Rick Hart, Knack, Knack, we can mostly figure that that's one out. Story. Yeah, we might have talked about it on the happy <laughs> yeah. hour. But did you have one that you went by? No. Uh, the Air Force, uh, in pilot training, we don't do call signs. My squadron was, I don't say Ellis or something like that. You know, we used the same call sign the whole time. It was time. like your air traffic control call sign yes. in a sense. Yes, yes. yes. But personally, you didn't have a, a nickname. No nickname. I Bob. had a nickname from oh. my, my, my comrades, yes. Oh, what was that? Uh, Strange Pot. <laughs> <laughs> my last name is Strang, so it They just in. added an E on the end. All right. Yeah. Uh, how about airplanes? You guys had nose art on your airplanes? None. 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 Just was, the red they, nose. They, they, I thought I saw one with a name oh, on it. Oh, some, some squadrons would allow it, but our commanders said, clean. It was the beginning yeah. of the uh, end of, yeah, of the fun of that. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. We didn't want that when we went over our clandestine things in Cambodia, we didn't want to have them see anything nasty on them. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, give us something. To, We're you, winning the hearts and minds, Bob. I know. Yeah. I know. I mean, you oh, guys were so lucky. You got to do your call signs and everything in pilot training. I thought that was cool. Well, these days, everybody has a call sign. Our intelligence officers and medical guys and everybody. But, Bob, I am sure the three of us could ramble on and on forever. But what did we maybe not ask you about? the? Again, we didn't talk about the dimensions and et cetera. But what else from your time or, or what other shout outs maybe do you want to make for the C-7? Well, uh, I think it's just it was just the thing I, I would bring out, and I probably already talked is that the camaraderie in the squadrons was absolutely incredible. And, you know, you flew probably four to five days a week, every day, six, you know. And a lot of us came out with a lot of good hours that way, but we got to know each other very, very much. And even the enlisted guys that you flew with, 
I mentioned in my conversation of a gentleman who was my engineer and loadmaster. And God bless you, my friend. He's gone. But um, his nickname was Top Cat. And TC was, he treated me like he was his son. I mean, he would refuel the airplane properly for me. I said, put on 600 gallon. No, Bob. <laughs> or a lieutenant, you know. Yeah. And I try and call him sir, and he said, don't call me sir, you know, that type of thing. And we got to know each other so well. And I'll say this, and it was not allowed at those officers and enlisted aren't supposed to fraternize. But I would get on the bus at my end of the base and go down to the other end of the base at Phuket to the enlisted NCO club in my Levi's and T-shirt. And TC and I would sit at the bar and drink beer together, and he would give me information about the Air Force about that I never would have dreamed of knowing. And he was the one that got me the assignment as a 141 driver, and that made my career and my life. Thank you, TC. (laughs) It's amazing how individuals affect your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that I learned as personally from my father, Sky, and he was in the Navy as a dentist, but he said, be advised. You may be a colonel or you may be a commander or whatever, but the enlisted run the outfit. And I took that seriously when I was in the Air Force and I respected the guys that worked with me uh, as enlisted guys. And it really paid off because it comes back to you too. And, and it's called respect. Amen. Well, Bob, this has been amazing. Thanks for your time today. You've been just a wealth of stories, and I learned a lot about the C-7. Knack, big thanks to you for introducing me to Bob and bringing him here. And as we start to close out, I'll turn over to you. Well, thanks, and thank you, Bob, for being with us. This has really been a fun deal to do and to learn about that airplane that had such an interesting mission and a really interesting history, how that airplane got into the Air Force. 50,000 hours in the air. What was your favorite airplane? The 747. Honest, it was, um, if you ever flown a Cessna 172, a 747 in the air felt like it. I mean, it was an incredible machine to fly. As long as you could just, it was just wonderful. The worst part about it is it was so big and you couldn't see the wingtips and everything and you couldn't make a bad landing. It was um, the giant gear that was tilted and you could just try and smash it on it and would just go (laughs) like landing on pillows honest to god but 747 was an incredible airplane to fly never forget flying tigers and these going into the old hong kong kai tak airport where uh, it was very difficult to make the turn to get into it it's not like the new one now and a lot of the captains, I don't like this. Do you want to fly this, Bob? And I've been a co-pilot. They said, yeah, I love this airport. <laughs> and most of the biggest problem is that you, the guys would make the turn. It's a 90-degree turn, almost 110 degrees. And then you'd have to get down to it. And they would make this level turn. you got to drop the nose. And so like rolling in. You roll, and just roll <laughs> down and get it on the runway and the Kitek. And the beauty, once you got it down and you got parked, you were only 10 minutes from the hotel because <laughs> it was so close to Did the, I hear you correctly? 50,000 flight hours, military, civil, just, across yeah, your Just career. under 50. Wow. Yeah. And uh, almost all, it sounds like, in workhorses. Well, yes. And, lo- and you, the reason for that is the long distance 
flights that I've had. I mean, the last 10 years of my career, I flew around the world once a month. And the last leg was always from Hong Kong nonstop to Memphis, 14 hours in the air. And, you know, you get all these hours and you're not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. But it's well, uh, managing, you know, a yeah. machine. So. Yeah. Rick, Bob, thanks so much for uh, being here today. This is a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.